Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. We are episode 19 today, and this would be the second episode uh, since the quarantine began and COVID. I decided early on that I was going to do every single podcast in person. Uh, there's been so many great podcasts with over webcam, but uh, I decided when I started this years ago, that's not how I do it. So uh, I've taken a long trip through the American South and Midwest and met up with some bass players. Uh, obviously, I had to take some safety precautions and most importantly, uh, meeting people outside for the most part. Uh, so in this episode today, you'll hear us sitting at a cafe outside. So there'll be background noise, there'll be cars, all that stuff. But uh, it was worth it just to be able to have a real hang with a real person, um, which I feel you really get a lot more out of uh, out of the podcast doing it that way. So uh, you guys are going to have to deal with some background noise uh, to experience the person live, so to speak. Um, in the interim, since we've been sort of off the air, if you will, or off the internet for a few months, I have made sure there is now a way to financially support this podcast. Uh, after I did this long, big trip, I figured it might be a good idea to start get money together for more trips so I can do more episodes and keep a higher frequency for you guys. So I'll go through all these right now. And PayPal, it's the Lowdown Society at gmail.com. That's the Lowdown Society, all lowercase letters, at gmail.com. For PayPal, Cash App is dollar sign TLS, capital letters, podcast, lowercase letters. Dollar sign, capital letters, TLS, lowercase podcast. That's all one word, TLS podcast. On Patreon, you go to patreon.com forward slash TLS podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash TLS podcast. Whoever is the fastest to hop on Patreon will be the first follower or supporter ever. Uh, I am doing things like printing uh, mugs and t-shirt pretty soon as I'm having a new logo created as well so that the Lowdown Society family can be, uh, can be loud and proud. If you have Venmo, we prefer to use that. It's just my name, at Victor Broden. Okay, so that's how you support this podcast if you want. The first in the series of five new episodes I just recorded is Ian Allison. Ian, obviously, to anyone who's on Instagram and interested in bass, is the guy who, so musically and in such a good-spirited fashion gives us the funkiest most unbelievably sound accurate synth bass lines on electric so uh, i've babbled enough without further ado uh you guys welcome to minneapolis minnesota and uptown uh sang about famously by prince and mr ian allison welcome to the lowdown society i did the in episode 19 and it's the first time where i didn't turn this thing on in time uh, <laughs> uh, Ian Allison, you go by Ian, right? I do. Yeah. Uh, Ian Martin Allison is is what it says on his Instagram. Uh, I know which it's has because I just couldn't get Ian Allison, and it's yeah. so funny. Now, and I don't really go by that, but now people sometimes call me that, and I think, wow, that's that sounds distinguished yeah. and a bit of a mouthful. But yeah. either either is fine. Yeah, I'm stoked that you're able to come out. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of my favorite cities on the planet. Uh, we are a few feet apart, not quite six, but we're not recording this uh, 
in Ian's home because he is quarantining with his mother who's over 70. That's right. So we're safe, people. You're not going to get infected by listening to this Ian. Um, so we have to do the non-spontaneous thing where I rewind your brain to some of your... Let's do it. ...to some of your uh, previous uh, rants here. We were talking about Queensryche, and you mentioned Def Leppard's Hysteria. So I, I want to talk about both those records. Absolutely. Uh, because you already did, but uh, what attracted you to it? And you also mentioned that in after you turned 40, instead of trying to hide your youth and your and and that side of your personality you're going to embrace it even though it does it's not considered cool by the muso crowd absolutely i mean none of them have ever sold that many records either by the way (laughs) that's really true yeah i mean yeah for me it was just this thing of like okay my 20s i was in a rock band and it was all about that my 30s i was all a side man and it was all about that and then when i turned 40 i had this this thought of, ooh, I, I need to control something um, and not be only at the whim of uh, an artist's tour schedule, mm-hmm. right? And so it was this decision of, like, I need to have something that I can call my own. I'm not going to put out bass records necessarily. Mm-hmm. I'm still, of course, going to be a sideman and play for people. I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things. But I also just wanted to talk about the experiences that I'd racked up from doing, you know, a couple decades of professional bass playing. And really at the bottom line of it was to not apologize for the things that I loved mm-hmm. or not think about that person that might be listening and, and maybe judging me for something I liked or something I said, mm-hmm. right? Everybody's got those people in their lives, right? Whether it's uh, a family member or a friend or, you know, a colleague or whatever that you think, like, before you post something on Instagram or on TikTok, you know, you go like, ah, I wonder what Aunt Barb is going to think. Like, I wonder what my dad is going to think, right? But instead of giving in to those fears, and I, I mean, I think that's why people don't post, is because they're scared of whoever is going to have a judgment about it. And yes. then they just don't do it. Yeah. And I just decided to say, fuck it and do it. Mm-hmm. And so that then became this fun journey of like going back and going, let's see, like I've been not talking about a lot of things that I've loved for a really long time and trying to hide my influences that a lot of it was like hair metal, like full on 80s hair metal. I grew up in Montana in a small town and I was late, like that place was late to a lot of things. So there was still like, even as grunge was happening in the early nineties, there were so many people culture there was more mid to late 80s you know what i mean it was just behind yeah and there was a babysitter that actually babysat my little sister her name was missy she's the best and she loved all this hair metal stuff and i was in love with her (laughs) right so so naturally you know we turn on mtv and she would say like oh that like i was like those guys look like girls and she was like yeah that's cool and i was like oh (laughs) oh it is and and then i was just head over heels so and then a few standouts from that era for me, like we were just talking, like Empire by Queensryche, I think is a masterpiece. Um, and I also love, I cannot help but love Hysteria mm-hmm. by Def Leppard. I mean, so Mutt Lang, I, there are people that talk about like, oh man, you know, the Cars record that Mutt Lang produced, like he killed that band because he wouldn't let him play on anything and it made him sound like not the Cars. And okay, but I sort of feel like the things that Mutt touched, for better or for worse, had an incredible thumbprint. Whether or not like you like his style of production, he had such a voice. 
and maybe it overshadowed bands or or like particular playing styles but I just couldn't help but love that Def Leppard record in terms of like what it was as like a time capsule. I mean, it's an incredible piece of work for like that era. It's I have, incredible. I have to insert that. You have to apologize here. I've been on this trip. I call it the podcast trip. But yeah. The way it started and the way it was funded, since this is free, is I got hired on a on a uh, Def Leppard tribute act out of Nashville. Amazing. So I just. I just, you know, I just, and the the uh, the act has Def Leppard's main guitar tech in it. He teched for Phil Collins for 13 years and just did one year for Vivian. So our backing tracks to the show I played was Def Leppard's own backing tracks. <laughs> Unbelievable, man! So I just want to like, so I'm on a hysteria trip as I'm talking to Dude, you. That is crazy, and I didn't know that. I, I promise that I didn't know that. I'm not trying to butter it up, you yeah. know. <laughs> That's amazing. It's just like. There was just a time in my life, and it was just honestly out of insecurity, out of like, okay, I want to be a session bass player, I'm going to play for all these different artists. And in Minneapolis, the things that I was doing when I started to do that were more in the like indie rock zone, some hip hop, but mostly like indie rock. And in those circles, it seemed like if I would even mention sometimes like these things that I grew up on, it was kind of like, oh, weird. Like, because, and then, you know, Sometimes guys would say like, oh man, you know, I hated that stuff. And I, so I kind of felt like, oh, this isn't, maybe this is something to be ashamed about, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then to just let that go, because who cares? I'm not ashamed about it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an yeah. amazing time, you know, and, and then too, to not be concerned when those things show themselves in your playing and, and to not go like, oh, I need to not, I need to like tamp down the me loving this stuff because I don't want it to kind of show up and I don't want to get outed but instead to like embrace the things when they show up and and decide like oh this is just part of me yeah and you cannot undo it you cannot it's like a picture of you uh, that several people have of you having the most embarrassing hair in second grade yep if only your mom has the picture you can rip it up but if more people have a copy you just have to say I did look like that in second grade and you know this it's so much more endearing to embrace it yeah versus to versus to try to hide it yeah the hiding is insecurity right the hiding is is just is out of like uh, just feeling insecure and you know trying to present something that you're not absolutely And, and the greatest to that point I think a lot of us I grew up on music that musicians didn't like. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of musicians anyways. And, you know, a fellow Swede, Max Martin, who's produced more, you know... Sure. You know, he's responsible for about 25 years of lots of American number ones. He said... You know, he, he, in, he interviews very rarely. Often it's for some small Swedish radio station yes. in Swedish. So yes. all these American friends of mine are pissed off. That they, <laughs> but it's in Swedish. Yeah, right. and, and not for a major thing where a lot of people could learn. But he, he says, look, people are looking for, oh, where, where did you learn? Like, you know, when he started making nine records in the 90s, in his wow. early 20s, uh, as a metalhead, he was in a metal band, a singer. 
and he started making these Britney Spears records, he thought he was making R&B right. and the ace and bass. He thought he was making American 90s R&B. Like, he thought he was making Tony Braxton and Brandy records. Yes. But he wasn't, or he was failing at it. But, but pe- people say, well, how did you come up on that sound? Like, what's your secret? What's your influence that made you genius? He goes, look, I'm on Cool. I love Def Leppard. Right. He grew up on Hysteria, and Hysteria, that level of perfection is what he's into now. Sure, for whether, sure. Whether you're into that level of quote-unquote, big quote-unquote, soullessness. Uh, sure. Uh, but uh, it, it's so great to, to hear you talk about that, because that's not... <laughs> Not that I at all expected you to talk about, uh, as we said before we turned on, Beatles and Radiohead. Yeah. Your playing doesn't communicate that to me either, but it communicates so many things. I have a million questions. But uh, it's an interesting place to start this podcast because it's not at all where I thought we started. Well, I love that. Yeah. I mean, and and part of it for me, like, I talk to, when, when I'm fortunate enough to teach and someone takes a lesson from me and asks about influences or music... What I try to convey to students is that, like, it's all, if you like it, it's valid. And even if you don't like it, I think that may even be more worth digging into, like, why you don't like something, Absolutely. right? Quote, instigated an emotion in you. Yes. Why? Right. And so t- instead of, like, saying, oh, Mutt, if Mutt Lang touches it, no way. Or, like, oh, 80s hair metal, no way. Like, you don't have to love it, but what if you decided, like, no, that is that was a thing. And why not? know about that thing like before we turn this on you were too talking about like country and like the the you know you grew up on on this on metal and hair metal but then you did country i mean you probably made i mean correct me if i'm wrong but you probably said okay i'm gonna dig into this and i'm gonna find out about it what is wonderful Mm -hmm. and i'm going to choose to follow the the things in it and the the pull the emotional pull in it that resonates with you instead of saying oh I'll never do like I'll never do the bro country thing or I'll never do the 90s country thing or yeah. like you have to you have to be versatile enough to say okay this maybe isn't the thing that I love the most but I want to know why other people like it I want to know like I want to respect it like I think for me I've I've become this uh, consumer of all kinds of different genres and styles because I just think it's fascinating. Like, if I hear something that feels crazy to me, like the first time I heard D'Antwerp, do you know that band? I do not. They're, oh, they're like a, like a South African hip-hop group and it is some of the most, like, at the, the, when I first heard it, it was some of the most abrasive, intense music I'd ever heard and I just, I didn't get it and it kind of offended me and I, I, I felt like hot after listening to it and I'm like, whoa, what is Worth this? Worth investigating. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. so then instead of going like, ooh, I don't like that because it made me feel uncomfortable, then I want to know, like, what what is this? This is incredible. Like, and maybe I'm not going to buy all the records, but I want to, like, I want to know. And so, too, like, man, when, when people would say, when I was younger, people in the studio, people would say, like, hey, let's do this thing, and it's, you know, I want you to do this kind of vibe. And maybe they would say, you know, I want you to do, like, a Zeppelin vibe. And I didn't, you know, even though I loved hard rock, I didn't come up on Zeppelin, but I would pretend to know what it meant. And if I could take anything back from those early days, it was my grandstanding and puffy-chestedness that was just all arose out of insecurity around not wanting to admit that I didn't know something. So I would say, yeah, man, sure, I know what that means. And then I would play something, and it was obvious that I didn't 
know what that meant. That happened wow. to me in the studio with a great producer here named Matt Kirkwald, who you know, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He wanted me to play, he was like, hey man, let's do a Beatles thing on the bridge. And I said, okay. And I just didn't, I mean, of course I'd heard Yellow Submarine, and but I didn't, I'd never studied McCartney's playing. Yeah. So I attempted something on the bridge of this tune that was horrible and not anything like McCartney. And he said to me, let's be done, <laughs> which, was, which was like a nice way of saying you're fired. And he said, I want you to go out and I want you to get Hitsville, USA. You need to learn about Jamerson and you need to get Beatles number ones mm-hmm. and learn about McCartney. And then when you've done that, mm-hmm. come back yeah. and we'll work together again. And so that... So that, he recognized your musicality. Yes. He I, said we'll work together again when he fired you. He did. Powerful. It, totally powerful. And, and honestly, like if he would have been more careless with that relationship, which he could have been. I didn't deserve his kid gloves, right? But he could have said, get out of here, man. What are you kidding me? You don't know McCartney? You're calling yourself a session? We had a relationship, so he wouldn't have done that. That's not the kind of guy he is, but I'm fortunate because he could have, right? And especially with the the bravado of a 26-year-old pretending to know what that was. And then even like playing it thinking I was going to fool him I mean oh my god like it just makes me want to like bury my head in the sand but it was the best thing right because then I'm learning then I'm going okay I'm outed now I need to I need to dig into this and he too is like don't you don't have to love the Beatles now but you need to know what it is and you need to like and then dig into that you know you hear McCartney's tone it does not sound like Eddie Jackson's tone and so maybe you love that bright active bass thing cool if you're making your own music forever great if you're making other people's music you need to start thinking about how to fall in love with the sound of a 60s Hoffner with flats but not only that it's just an it's just one it's one of the arrows in the quiver right and so it led me down this path of like oh I get it now it's not just just about only loving one thing. Mm-hmm. It's about really respecting multiple things, and then hopefully being able to execute on those on, a, on like a wide variety of things. So it started this thing of like uh, really being excited to be a chameleon in yes. that way, you know. I want to ask you a question uh, because you started talking about o- owning who you are musically. So I want to ask you a personal question. Yeah, I just came. Dope. I just came from uh, Jim Jimmy Anton's house. Yes, legendary Minneapolis bass player and a world class. If there was ever such a term, a world class bass player. And we talked a lot about. Uh, we had a non-bass conversation, which is why it's not on this podcast, but talked a lot about mental health and about general attitude in life and a lot of that stuff and we talked about you know being on a gig and the other 22 and a half hours on the road when you're not on stage and how valuable it is to when other people are complaining about the catering or you got regular coke instead of diet coke on your rider (laughs) yeah sure and to be the one guy on the bus that's not complaining about that to be to be the guy who's cracking a bad jokes even to where you're annoyingly positive we went for a walk and later on he said Ian's a great guy and a great bass player. He talked to me about 
arriving at the conclusion that he used to put a lid on his bubbliness and positivity sure. and personality. Sure. And you just talked about doing exactly that with your bass playing and your sure. music taste. Yes. So I want to talk about your personality, sure. which people have listened to you talk for 10 minutes already. So <laughs> do, do you... Is it all connected? Because it sounds like the same thing. It's 100% connected, of course. How could it not be, right? I mean, like when you hear someone play, I mean, that's just an extension of their personality. Absolutely. I think that, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, and even now to some extent, I try to maybe fit into a a situation. But it's all just about... um, It's all about your self-confidence and self-worth and, and various levels and lack thereof, right, in certain situations. I mean, I've played for artists where I felt like, ooh, if I, be, if I am myself, I don't know that I'm going to get this gig. Like, if I'm enthusiastic and I really... And, I mean, you have to be socially aware. I mean, I'm not going to roll into a gig where I don't know anybody and then just immediately start talking about Queensryche. <laughs> but if, Obviously. But if, but there are limits. Yeah, 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 but if someone asks me, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And I think that I used to lie and, you know, or omit, I shouldn't say lie. I would just, I would omit things in order to seem cooler. Right. And I think that everyone does that to some extent. I just am done doing that. And it's so funny because I I played with this artist named Eric Hutchinson for the past six years. And he has been so sweet to me in encouraging me in my pursuit of base nerdiness or, you know, um, the, the stuff that I'm doing on Instagram. He was really a proponent of me going for it. And there was a moment, I'll never forget it. We were walking in Seattle. We were there in a gig and I said, you know, I just don't know that I want to like show people or like let people know like really you know, who I am and like how nerdy I am and how much I like gear or how much I like all these, you know, styles of music that maybe aren't cool. And he was like, man, but if people get to know you, they, they get to know who you are and they know that stuff already. And, and they, and because of who you are, they're not bothered by that. They like that. Like if you're, if your enthusiasm is coming from a genuine place, you'd have to be an asshole to be like, oh, this guy likes this? What a dick. I mean, you know, like, then those people aren't worth having around. And I really do think that's true. I just think, you know, it's that age-old stupid advice of, like, just be yourself. It's very simple and sort of condescending sounding, but it's truly the best advice. And it's hard to execute on. Mm -hmm. It's actually really hard to be yourself sometimes. It it takes... A lot of bravery and and a lot of uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes you don't you don't see I, what no, good it would do, but you have to always point. do it, I guess. But yeah. yeah, I just I felt like that personal question yeah, was it was so interesting when he said that that you would put a lid on your bubbly personality because I actually on one of my RV tours as a bar band guy based yeah. here mm-hmm. in my mid twenties when our RV broke down in the middle of the Arizona desert one time. And everyone else in the band was like, you know, F this and F that and this sucks and, you know, we're so unlucky. And then I came in with some probably extremely annoying, cheerful, motivational speech. (laughs) And uh, they basically told me to go to hell with my positive attitude. It was really annoying. Right. And I I somehow, from watching your videos, I'm like, oh, he's, he's... He's one of me. He's annoyed somebody before (laughs) with his cheerfulness because they think it's fake. Uh, Yeah, right, right. I suppose that's probably true. I mean, I definitely... I I think 
sometimes people think that like, oh, if you're just trying to cheer somebody up, that that you're uncomfortable with the negativity in the situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and sometimes that happens in my relationships where, you know, like if my wife has something that she's talking about where, you know, and I feel like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be complaining so much. They'll try to, I'll try to shift it. Mm -hmm. And her thing with me is always like, don't like, let me have this moment Mm -hmm. before you, before we just try to snap out of it to bright side yeah. it. Yeah. And so that's something that I'm trying to learn too, because I'm always trying to find the, you know, the silver lining. Yeah. But sometimes I think when that's annoying, at least in my experience, is when it feels like I'm not allowing the actual feeling of negativity to be had by yeah. someone else. Yeah. You know? Um, but like there was a gig, I'm not gonna tell you who who the artist was for, but I remember like going and playing with a band for about four shows and it was immediately clear to me that I had too much earnesty and kind of like dad vibes you know what I mean like these guys were all like single at the time and you know and I just remember thinking like I'm not going to pretend to be a single guy out on the road that is you know what I mean I'm not gonna I'm not even gonna entertain that thought to get this gig and it felt like I was the wrong fit. And you know what? Thank God I was the wrong fit. Because that's not the... Like, I don't... I didn't want that vibe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the road, you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah, man. I just... I think you have, you have to be you. Like, yeah. with, with some self-awareness around how it will land. And then you have to be okay with the consequences and the ramifications yeah. of how yeah, it lands. I didn't get that gig. Yeah. Maybe I would have if I would have pretended to be... You know, yeah. on Tinder, yeah, <laughs> but but it's not that's not my deal. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you sharing about that. I just thought when you said that you learned to own who you are, and not be ashamed of your uncool music taste. I thought the comment that uh, that when G- Jim Anton mentioned that yeah. you guys were having a conversation about your personality, yeah. I thought that was just so, you know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well. Back to base. Yeah, let's do it. So I I usually spend part of my podcast with everyone I have on here. I'm sort of a fan of, and and I'm a fan of yours. And, and everything you post is great. But I think I don't know if this is a, the video I found you on. I think I already followed you, but this is a video that just made me realize like this guy is all music, no bullshit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you were playing, I think, Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Yes. And you had programmed, you'd just gotten the Little Helix, right? Yes, right. And you just programmed in a few things required to imitate that synth sound with a little octave up and down thing. Yes, right. And it was just, not that copying things is the end-all, be-all, but I thought, this is the most, and it's, you know, a few notes. Right. But as far as how that matched up with the record and the way you played it, I said, this is the most musical thing I've heard on Instagram in a long time. Dude, thank you. Yeah. It, it's so after that, I look at everything. But I, but so my follow-up question to that yes. is, obviously you're super multifaceted in many genres, and you are truly a freelance. You know, I can tell all the influences you have from your videos, but uh, I don't want to say your specialty, but the thing that seems to be a recurring theme through your videos yes. is your absolute fascination with really accurately playing synth bass on your electric yes so the Miley Cyrus thing and and can you how 
because you're, you're, you must be obsessed. Otherwise, you can't be that good at it. <laughs> so please let me know how that obsession came about. Man, that's, yeah. It, it's so interesting, right? Because everyone talks about like, oh, you know, having a thing. Like, what's my thing? How do yeah. you find your voice? All that stuff. I, like, the my answer to that would be just follow the things that you like. Mm-hmm. Right? So for me, it began... Probably, even when I was a little kid, hearing radio tunes, I've always loved pop music, and so I'd hear aha on the radio. I mean, you know, anything that had synth bass in it, uh, Phil Collins, right? Like, and I would hear these things and go, man, that does not sound like a guitar. But it, and I knew what the bass guitar was. It didn't sound like a bass guitar either, but it was in this low-end zone. And I just, before I was even really knew what it was, I was fascinated with it, just because sonically it was so cool to me. So... Then in college, I started to get into Bjork, and I remember there's a tune called Hyper Ballad that just has this low, like, sine wave. It's nothing special. It's just this incredible trunk rattling mm-hmm. bass line. I also loved hip hop music. And then I found an octave pedal in a music store, EBS Octave Pedal. Swedish, I yes. think. Swedish yes. indeed. Yes, I'm yes. good buddies with <laughs> the guys. That was my that first. Made, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that was my first octave pedal. And I just my remember. First. I mean, yeah. And I remember thinking, like, this is amazing because now I can sort of start to emulate some of these things that I've been loving on records. And just like a kid would play along to something that they liked um, on a record, I started to then like play along to hip hop records. Like I love like Talib Kweli and Most Def, and and so I would find like, oh, not only can I do the Icelandic, you know, pop like Queen music with this, but I can also dig into like wow, hip-hop, I'm starting to sound like these things or starting to sound like some of this electronic music that I liked. You know, And this was before I fell in love with you know, Aphex Twin and Square Pusher and there are all these then electronic things that have really cool bass lines that I got into later. But in the beginning, it was very just innocent around loving pop music. And, and then when I decided to like really embrace these things that I loved, part of that was... I love making these sounds on electric bass. There are definitely some people doing it. I mean, Tim LaFave has been doing it for a very long time. Um, John Davis, who plays in Nerve, holy moly. I mean, I think he's, to me, he's at the top of the game. But a lot of guys that do it seem to kind of do it in a more avant-garde or jazz space. Yes. And there aren't a ton. And people that are playing pop gigs are playing electric bass on the electric bass tunes and then they have a Novation yeah. station or they have a key bass like a Moog setup yeah. or something and I have a Moog but I'm bad at it yeah <laughs> I refuse to believe that but, but well quote unquote I, I thought that it was going to be easy I should say that I bought I bought a little fatty and I thought I'll learn this in an afternoon and then I was like, oh my God, learning how to do analog synthesis with a real synthesizer could be your life's work. I mean, it's really difficult. Yes. At least it is for me. Yes. And I could easily do it with pedals. And so I just thought, well, what if I kind of just do this thing that I love mm-hmm. and start to talk about it more on yeah. the internet? Yeah. And suddenly the thing that became just a kind of like weird side hobby that I would do in my bedroom and not do on records, right? You know, or, or if I tried, bust out a chorus pedal and an octave pedal and a producer would say like, get that, like, what? you doing man get that out of here play the bass okay but the more i did it and the more i professed my love for it the more people associated me with it and the more i just started to get called for it so now i would say 80 percent of the work that i get someone wants an aspect of that on something you know what i mean i don't get hired a ton to play straight down the middle 
electric bass. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> I get hired to do kind of weird things, which honestly, man, I'm I'm really grateful for that. Blessing. Yes. Full on. Yeah, for sure. And it just came from me deciding to be okay with the things that I loved and to start to really talk about it. I think there's two two stages in that. You have to decide it's okay. Mm -hmm and that it's valid mm -hmm. and then you have to put it out there mm -hmm. and not be afraid of the blowback you might get or someone that say oh man that's just a facsimile of so and so or like oh man lame you, you know you should be playing a keyboard but but to just and, and there aren't very many of those things I mean you know people aren't super mean with comments like that but there's a bit of it and to kind of go oh okay you have to you have to be okay to put that foot forward and make that statement mm -hmm. if you really love it and then hopefully it comes back to you in terms of people starting to go, hey, will you do your thing? And I remember when someone first said that to me, I was like, what does that mean to you? <laughs> like, what is, they're like, oh, that's synth-based thing. And I was like, oh, that's, like, that's my thing? Yeah. Amazing. I would love it if that were my thing, <laughs> you know? Um, because, yeah, you don't come out of the womb with your thing, yeah. right? You have to develop that. My thing has always been when you really love something, people can hear that you love it. Right. So you really love this, and it's when you do it, it's obvious that technically you've dialed that in. Right. But just looking at your face or your body language, it's obvious that you love it. Yeah. So people, I think, even people that can't put their finger on why they like it, mm -hmm. it's usually, I think, because they can tell that you love it. Right. So, and they're maybe drawn in, hopefully, by that enthusiasm or, or that authenticity. And I think there are musicians that did a thing or two in a few sessions that wasn't their thing, just because they are chameleons. Mm -hmm. And then those sessions became hit records. Yep. And they got stuck doing this thing <laughs> that maybe they don't mind doing. Sure. But that became attached to their name, and at least you have this thing getting attached to your name that you geek out on hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned the Miley Cyrus tune. I mean, I remember hearing that party in the USA for the first time and thinking like <gasps> that synth baseline in the chorus like mesmerized me. The, the portamento when it does those octave jumps. Mm -hmm. wow, wow, how it gets there. And immediately I just thought, how can I do that? Um, because it didn't, it sounded so outside of the other things I was hearing at the time anyway in pop music. Was that Max Martin? Did he do that one? I don't know, actually. I don't either. But she works with a lot of other producers. Sure. So, yeah. It's think, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. And I just remember I got an opportunity to play that with a band and I bought one of those Boss Super Shifter mm -hmm. pedals. It was like the first, you know, that, and you can set how the note rises to the target and how it descends mm -hmm. back to original. And I remember playing with it, and you know, you just step on the switch, and it would go or wing like as fast as mm -hmm. you know you would set it. I just remember playing with it until I got it just right, and I could kind of emulate that with a fuzz and an octave, and thought like, oh. and then I remember you know bringing all that stuff and setting it all up just to do the one tune. And it's just because when I when I see a band that is playing maybe that song or songs that have very like super characteristic mm -hmm. like thumbprint synth bass lines, and they're just not. They don't care. Mm -hmm. And they're just playing electric bass to it and playing the octave jump with a normal bass sound. It's fine, but it like breaks my heart because there's such an artistry to crafting those sounds. Mm -hmm. And I think in academia, people talk so much about like, oh, transcribe. You know, if you're a musician, you need to be transcribing the greats. Like, you know, transcribe uh, Coltrane solos and you're going to be transcribing Miles Davis. And um, for soloing, 
and you know all the all the famous bass players, but no one talks about transcribing synth bass lines. Nobody, at least not that I'm aware. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the most the coolest ways to get out of your own zone of playing all the things that you know yeah. and that are very like canon for your instrument. But if you're transcribing synth bass, the crazy thing is it's still bass. It's still functioning in the role that you are doing, but it is so different. Like the ways the octave jumps and the interval jumps that are possible on a keyboard are so awkward on an electric bass. And so to think about then like it takes how you to approach up, that. Up, up, up. Pardon my interruption, but I really want you to address because, like you said, it breaks you out of a box yes. because they're uncomfortable. You they're said, super right? uncomfortable. So, a lot of those lines are not played by bass players, right? So they're written differently than we would have wrote it for sure. And and out of the box is such a physically awkward thing, and it's it's just I feel like that's the greatest lesson what you just stumble upon that they become awkward on electric and that's why we need to play them. Absolutely, right? yes. Yeah. I just got to do this big video for um, Scott's Bass Lessons, you know, talking about the synth bass lines over the you know years that I've really loved. And one that was so difficult to learn is Aaliyah, uh, produced by Timbaland, did this tune for the Romeo Must Die soundtrack in the year 2000. The tune's called Try Again. It has one of the most difficult and cool, like... Moog basslines that I've ever heard with all these huge octave jumps. I think there's like a four octave range in it. And trying to figure that out, it's like doing that work is as important and as valid to me as as the the academic thing of like transcribing a uh, Coltrane solo because it, you know, people say like, oh, transcribe the horn players because it'll get you out of your zone. Well. Sure, but also, like pop productions with synth bass, that mm-hmm. is completely out of your zone too, but it has the added benefit of still being your role. Mm-hmm. So like instead of, you know, if you transcribe, you get the Omni book and you work through uh, all, the, all the bird solos, well, great. How, are you going to be able to apply that? Maybe you will, yeah. but then you're kind of in this like saxophone solo territory. But what if you transcribe synth bass lines? That stuff applies directly to so many things that you can be doing in your same role, which I think is unique. So instead of uh, at the end of the episode having you push stuff you've just done, since you just mentioned the Scots Bass Lessons breakdown of synth bass, uh, history is there a, you know can you uh, people can just go discuss th- that's part of the subscription correct it's not a there's a YouTube video that I did for them um, I'm gonna start I'm gonna be doing more content for them on YouTube I have a, a course and some seminars that are really in depth uh, that you need subscriptions for but there is just an absolutely free like 17 minute long form YouTube video that is my that are my favorite like top ten synth bass lines that I feel like people need to be learning on their electric bass, and that's totally free. Okay, cool. So we'll definitely send to send people to that, and the subscription obviously because hopefully Scott is kind enough to compensate you for your work. For him. <laughs> I mean, man, when yeah. when I when I connected with him, 
apart from anything else, I was just so thrilled to get a membership. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, he was like, hey, man, will you do some stuff for us? I was like, are you kidding me? I'm a huge fan. I would love to. And he was like, well, let me let me get you set up on the site. You can kind of have a look. And I'm like, oh, I get a membership? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like something that I had uh, flirted with doing for a, a long time but just hadn't pulled the trigger on. And yeah, man, get that get that comp membership. Pretty yeah. sweet. Pretty sweet, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, you're conceited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, I've seen you do some other stuff. Well, let me get back to the synth. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm excited, as yeah, always. Yeah, it's all good. So, uh, you said Octave Fuss, which is yep. a traditionally a, you know, a synth bass winning combo. Yes. When it comes to the the fuzz settings or the fuzz pedals. Pardon me, the fuzz pedals you prefer for that. Yep. Can you give people a quick little start here? Sure. Yeah. There. Uh, I mean, I hesitate to even do that because... Well, here. I, sure, I will totally do that, but let me just say this. I think there are four components you need to start being able to put together, like, your own sort of, like, modular synth yeah. for your bass guitar. And that is starting with an octave pedal, mm -hmm. then it's some kind of gain, mm -hmm. then it's some kind of envelope filter, and mm -hmm. then it's some kind of modulation. And the crazy thing about that is any four of those components that you get will will give you a really cool vibe. Mm -hmm. Like any brand, any model mm -hmm. of any of those four things, and you will have a flavor that is unique and really yeah. cool. And that I would like you know, like if you had four that you loved and told me about, I would want to go check it out because it's so, that's the thing is like, you have to gravitate toward things that you love and things that are kind of in your head. And then you come up with this sound, the things that I love, um, in terms of octave, uh, the three leaf has made a pedal that I really love called mm -hmm. the, um, the octaver and then love the old boss OC two. But in terms of fuzz, which you asked about, um, I have loved like variations on the big muff so like way huge makes a pedal called the pork and pickle mm -hmm. which has like a swollen pickle um setting on it that i think is great um but also uh minneapolis company zvex mm -hmm. man the woolly mammoth was one that i loved in the beginning that's a great pedal they also make a thing called the massatron mm -hmm. and it's really sort of squelchy and almost sort of velcro-y sounding oh, very wow. different than maybe a maybe an overdrive um, the one that I'm using now the most is, again, Three Leaf, this guy named Spencer Doran, who makes pedals in his apartment in um, Seattle. I think he's just a genius. He makes a thing called a Doom 2, and it's very—it's a, it's a misleading name um, because it's not as blasty. You think you hear the word Doom, and you think, oh, it's going to sound like Bongzilla or something. There's no. no Norwegian death metal. Yeah, yeah, right, and it doesn't. It sounds, it's its almost sort of like low-gain envelope-y by itself, Um and it was kind of to emulate Stevie Wonder's left hand on tunes like Boogie on Reggae Woman. Mm -hmm. So so Spencer is a huge Stevie fan and loves Stevie's bass playing, mm -hmm. um, his key bass playing. And so he tried to make some pedals that would emulate that. And boy, an octave into that doom fuzz, which is, again is not real fuzzy. It's just this sort of wave shaper. It takes away all your dry bass. I mean, you can blend, but the, the full-on wet setting does this really just nice kind of mellow square wave sound that mm -hmm. just transforms your bass into more of like a synth thing. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I've seen you do also 
one video I saw you do was like there was a I think a muted pick thing. You're like you don't have to every time you play with a pick you don't have to have round one strings and you yeah. can you know. So yeah. I mean you didn't go full on Carol K, but there was a nice sort of middle ground there. For sure. So yeah. Oh man, I mean you know it's funny because depending on the artist I play with, I play with this singer songwriter uh, in Minneapolis too named Jeremy Messersmith, and he his thing is like Beach Boys meets. Uh, Sergeant Pepper's, you know, very like his aesthetic is very like 60s flat wound thumpy bass. He, in fact, he used to be his own bass player. Like he would lead, be the singer, right, and and also then play bass. And he had like a cool Hofner copy, like a cheap, like a Rogue or something, mm-hmm. you know. And when I joined the band, um, I knew immediately that I I should be playing like something with that vibe, mm-hmm. just because I didn't want to impose. The, and that's that's this thing around self-awareness too where like I'm not going to come into somebody's band like that and say I'm the guy that plays you know like fuzzy synth bass lines on yeah. electric bass so I'm going to do that no you're like, a musician yeah, yeah right so yeah. I'm going to like man I really dug into what he liked and listened to his records and was like oh I got it and I have an old Starfire with flats old Tomastic flats on it that I love I found at a music store in Chicago in Chicago not Chicago Music Exchange doesn't matter rock and roll vintage but what I guess what I love is I want things to sound I want things to sound thumbprint I want things to be like oh yeah that's that thing Mm -hmm. you know like hearing you know you say Carol Kay or like I'm not going to play a P-bass with rounds with a pick for Jeremy because it's not it would be the wrong thing yeah Um, and so for me like muted a little bit of spring reverb and then thumpy pick sounds mm-hmm. for his music it's the perfect thing mm-hmm. and I'm a people pleaser so when I bring something that then the artist is like yes mm-hmm. that's hugely gratifying to me mm-hmm. as opposed to me going no 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 man hold on I'm gonna do my thing well our job description as sidemen really is to, to, to do that yes that's the great that, that's the number one job so when the artist says that oh that like oh yes that's the thing for my music there's nothing then better that's 10 out of 10 yes right and yeah. I, I always want to provide that um, but man you know then 40 40 year old Ian right is like also I want to do something that feels like me yeah you know so when I play with Jeremy 100% I'm in that like flat wound starfire mm-hmm. zone but then when I'm maybe writing music or collaborating with someone who has a different thing I'm maybe then wondering about bringing in some of the things that I desperately love about electronic music or you know like leaning into those things more when I have some artistic say in a project or when someone is like hey let's do something that you want to do I find that I'm <laughs> more and more kind of leaning into that sort of synth territory mm-hmm. I just love that music so speaking of uh, you know the instrument choices and your thing you if, if you if you were on a desert island and you can only bring one type of bass so you are a 70s jazz bass guy right yeah I mean it's I'm funny. not putting you in a box here I'm just <laughs> trying to get some yeah. it's funny man I, I have two jazz basses that I play a lot and yeah. one is a 68 and it has flats on it and I do use that one with for all the kind of synthy stuff but then I have a 78 which is the same year that I was born and it has round wounds on it kind of old round wounds I don't change them a lot I sort of like the sound of old round wounds on that bass and it's weird it's 
On paper, it's the worst jazz bass I've ever owned. Because In what way? Because it's heavy. It, it, it suffers, quote-unquote, suffers from all of the, quote-unquote, flaws from the CBS, late CBS era Fender, which is boat anchor weight, um, not dried out ash bodies, thick poly finishes, um, giant neck pocket gaps, sort of shoddy, yeah, sort of shoddy workmanship, maybe kind of low output pickups. But the thing is, man, it was the first old jazz bass that I bought because it's Antigua. And, and if I'm, if I'm being honest, I just really loved the color so much. It's, it's, it's a very sexy looking bass. I mean, I think so. Yeah. I actually don't trust people that don't like it. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> like, like people are like, man, that's gross. I'm like, oh, all right, all right. I know that you have bad taste. That's, that's cool. just my, that's yeah. just my own judgment. But, uh, I love it. And I just got to know it. Mm-hmm. And it began this sort of thought, and then I would always try to beat it. So then I would, you know, over the years, I would buy these other jazz basses, maybe, you know, custom shop or trying to find something that was quote unquote better. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I discovered was that I learned how to play a jazz bass with that bass. And so then when I would try to play something else that was for sure better on paper, hotter pickups, more low end, lighter, all the things that people look for in an instrument, mm-hmm. it it just felt strange yeah. and and side by side people you know i would choose the you know the lighter more output one for sure but sometimes in a band mix or the one that i learned how to play was just the one that i wanted to use there are bases that make you feel more like you yeah man and that that one so the desert island one for me is for sure my 78 antigua yeah and part i mean your videos have played into this but i I, you know, my current main poison is early Yamaha BB bases. Yeah, man, I know, and, man. You make me want to get one. And I bought eight of them in the last oh, two years. Oh, my God. That's and amazing. They're, they're, they're very different. Some are better than others, but they're, they're not a single one that's not good to great. That's so cool. Uh, and it's just a matter of which color and how heavy and how angry do you want the pickup winding because none of them sound exactly the same. Oh, they're still so They're cool. old enough to... but. But I've been in that world hardcore, and it's really, it's me returning to my roots because a lot of people, when I was 10 to 15 years old, played those. Yeah. And because they're neck throughs, they have a little bit of that specter mid. You yeah, know? for sure. But then they have a lot of P bass honk, so yep. it's like this thing where they really don't sound just like a P bass, and they really don't sound just like anything. They sound like themselves, but close enough to P where people aren't offended when you take them on a gig. Yes. Um, but I've never been a quote unquote. Fender guy, like as far as I have to play one. Sure. So I'm thinking as you know, yet another mental health purchase during this trying time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get a '70s jazz. You gotta do it. And uh, I've been really looking, and I find that they are priced in a neighborhood where they're cheaper than a lot of custom bases. Yep. Which a '60s Fender isn't. I feel like a 70s Fender is still like a major purchase, but it won't break you. For sure. So if you don't love it, you can probably sell it or, you know, you're not out that much money. So I'm really looking. And and if you were buying more 70s Fenders, what would you look for? Well, I don't actually have... The the 70s is very different. Early 70s, mid 70s, late 70s are very different. Um, I have a friend who has like a 72 Jazz, and it is so different than my 78. I have two 78s just because, again... It was the thing that I got used to, so it was the thing that I loved. Now, that said, you may not love it. Like, mm-hmm. 
If I were you, I would I would try to play before you buy an early '70s one, anywhere from '71 to '4, and then um, there aren't too many '77s around. It seems like, but '78s there are quite a few of. Um, and so, play something from the early and play something from the later, and and see what you think. I think that the earlier ones are more like the late '60s ones in that. The neck profiles are maybe a little bit thinner. The mm-hmm. late '70s ones are a little thicker front to back, mm-hmm. um, which I which I, I like too. Oh, well, then you might really like that. Yeah, yeah because I've played a few late '70s ones in stores lately, and I'm like, oh, there's beef down there. Yeah, and I yeah. love that. Yeah. Versus the the taper, yeah. you know, slight at the nut and then bigger at the 12th fret. I'm not. I don't love that. But again, it's just because that's that's just what I got used to. Yeah. Um, but I've never met a late 70s jazz that, you know, that was set up properly that I didn't think was really cool. And don't be freaked out by the, the low output and the kind of, they might sound a little bit thin on their own. They have all this character. So you find that then if you add a little bit of low end with your pre and you bump up the gain and you, then you get all that kind of like delicious fender character. Um, but then with a sort of added benefit of maybe modern preamp or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. I I use mine on stuff all the time. Yeah. I love it. I had a 73 precision, and it it was a, it didn't weigh anything. Yeah. It was like this wondrous modern, like, weight-relieved chamber body, but it was a 73 precision. Right. It weighed nothing, and... Uh, I, I loved it, but I could couldn't I could live without it. Right. For the longest time growing up, one of my first bases and the one I learned to play fretless on is a seventy-eight P. Oh, cool! It's everything you just said about your yes, heavy, Antigua. heavy yep. neck pocket like a zip code. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or you could put your picks in it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah, right, and uh, but. Uh, yeah, it was really a pain in the ass to play, but I really loved it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, one of them dumb sales. But I, I think that really shows 72 to 78. It's like... Very different. Yeah. I, I felt it, but in P bases. Yes. Yeah. I had a 71 P base for a while, too, that was very light and yeah. resonant and cool. And I liked it, too. But, yeah, man, I, it's weird. If you listen to forums and you kind of listen to the the common sense of the craft, it, it, it prioritizes certain things right so like lightweight is better yeah right at least now that seems to be the thing like oh light means more resonance that's not true it's not necessarily true what i find actually what i've just decided is true for me (laughs) is that when they're light then the headstock is really heavy and then what i find is that i'm holding them up with my left hand with my fretting hand all night or having to kind of like anchor and hold the body with my right arm Mm -hmm. but when they're 10 plus pounds which to some people is like anathema like oh I would never yeah Yeah. man you can play them on a strap and they they don't want a headstock dive and then you're not babying them with your left hand all night if you're playing live so yeah man for me the late 70s stuff even if it's 12 pounds people are like oh that's terrible they're badass yeah 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 so uh obviously since you since you do such great stuff on instagram you're for scott's bass lessons the 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 the, the pandemic situation hasn't, yes. hasn't hit you in the gut tremendously professionally sure i assume I mean, I was right in the middle of a tour with Eric Hutchinson when it all went down. And so, you know, I had spent a lot of time on the road in the last six years. So in terms of touring income, And for you're sure, a dad. So and I'm a dad, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, being home has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, more time with the family, 
But I remember, you know, like when it first happened, everything just for me anyway, just no one was wanting to play me to play on their record. And I thought, well, maybe now I'm just going to go like drive a truck or like, you know, I just thought, wow, man, what if this is it? But then what I discovered is like, wow, especially if you have some kind of penchant for doing content or doing online stuff. So I do a bit of online teaching. Of course, I'm you know really active on Instagram. Um, but if you if you enjoy that stuff, then you can still I feel like you can still make it work. Um, at least I've I've been really fortunate to see an uptick in doing lessons and in even doing sessions. I thought like, oh no, no one's going to have any money and no one is going to need bass on anything forever. And boy, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. I find that I've, I'm playing on on something, a few things every week, which I feel really fortunate for. Well, I, th- I think to piggyback, you're basically talking about the same thing. I think Sweetwater and, and si- other similar outlets are selling more basic home recording <laughs> yeah, equipment for than sure, ever. man. Yes. So, Anyone making music at home is probably, you know, who's, who's, you know, there's probably a lot of, ma- I call them mail order sessions. Yeah, sure. There's probably a lot of more mail order sessions happening because of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like, if that's something, if you're listening and that's something that you want to get into, boy, now's the time. Yeah. I mean, right? Like, being able to hit up someone and say, hey, could I lay something down for you? Or, like, hey, here's an idea. I was just talking about this with somebody who was really reluctant to reach out or like want to collaborate. When I, whenever, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're like me where you've got a million ideas or riffs or something in the voice memos of your phone or like, you know, and I have all these things where I just played a 20 second thing and thought that's cool. And then I go, wow, that was creative for the day. Like click, but then the, it doesn't go anywhere. Right. Because I'm not finishing these ideas. The times that I've actually sent them out. I remember I wrote this slap bass thing. And that's not something that I like, that I'm pushing for myself, like a slap bass guy. Like I'm not trying to make that my thing, but I enjoy it and I do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember uh, my, I have a friend, a dear friend from Minneapolis named Corey Wong and who, and he now is a friggin' guitar superstar. Yeah. He's but, an arena guy. Yes. Yeah. But before he was a superstar, he and I would, you know, <laughs> make music together and play and, you know, and I was like, Hey man, I, I wrote this thing. Would you want to check it out? And he's like, yeah, let's check it out. And I went over to his house and we co-wrote this tune together and it was just from a little voice memo. It was just from one little seed, you know? And then again, I sent a songwriter something. I said, man, this sounded like you. I played these double stops on bass and it sounded like you like make this a guitar part. And he wrote a tune out of it. And then we're going into the studio doing an EP as a result of that interaction. Right. So if anybody is at home bummed out about COVID and what that has done to your creativity, boy, if there is any inkling of sending somebody something without any expectation like hey i wrote this thing it's a 15 second riff Mm -hmm. and it sounds like something we could maybe do boy that stuff i have found that no one is going man that's a stupid idea Mm -hmm. or like why would you send that nobody responds negatively to you reaching out with an idea typically it leads to something fruitful Mm -hmm. You just have to have the self-confidence enough to say, hey, check this out. And then if it goes nowhere, to not be devastated, right? But typically someone was like, wow, man, that's so cool. Like, let's let's do it. And then, boy, the ball starts rolling. But sometimes that has to come from you, you know, instead of you kind of waiting and going, oh, man, I'm not doing the same things that I used to do. Well, dig through that phone, right? Find that bass riff that you think that you've maybe even forgotten and go, oh, that one's kind of cool and send it to somebody. Like, I... 
seriously, not to be like a action step guy because I think that's yeah. sort of corny. Um, but but really, like if if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you, the base listener or whatever, to go through your phone right after this, find one idea that you think that you've forgotten about or whatever, or even if it's kind of been rolling around in your head, oh, I'd like to do something with that and give it away. Send it to someone. Don't hold on to it because you're going to make, you know, you've been saying that you're going to make your bass solo record for the last 15 years. Great. Still hold on to that if you want. But what if you took that one idea that you thought, huh, and you have a friend in mind or a collaborator in mind, send it to them and see what happens. See if it opens up another door. Yeah. It's the best. It's the best thing to do. And I think the key there is to be okay with if it's only you and your friend that ever hears it, that's fine too. Totally. At least you hit send. Yes, for sure. And I think with that, not to have low expectations in life, but it really is all about sharing it with, with one friend, I think. Absolutely. Nail on the head. And, and then if, you, if you're lucky, they write a song and more people hear it. Yeah. Just to not be isolated with your ideas. For sure. Especially during this time, because there's so little FaceTime. Like, yeah. this is a luxury. It's not very Oh, common, I know. You know. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and to not, um, not only to, to not uh, be isolated in this time, but to, like, to, to you starting a collaborative process. I think for me, I, I'm probably just talking to myself. Like, a lot of times when it feels like I'm giving advice, yeah. it's essentially me being irritated with a way that I operated for so many years. Like, yes. when I get the most passionate about a set of, you know, tools or advice, it's me saying, God, I wish I had done this. I wish that I had sent more material to people and been, and been less like, uh, oh, this is mine. This is mine. Because when I felt that way of like, ooh, I'm not going to send this to anybody because, ooh, I'm going to do something cool with this. I haven't done anything with it. The only time I've done something with something is when I've sent something to somebody. <laughs> and then there's like juice for, and there's someone else that's also on the, on the team or on the train that is like, oh, man, yeah, that's cool. And it's validation. You're like, oh, okay. I thought it was maybe cool. And they go, yeah, it is. Yeah. And you go, rad, let's, you want to do something? Like, yeah. Yeah. And then at least maybe it's Instagram content. Maybe you put a beat together. And yeah. then maybe you do a play along, right? I mean, it's it all can be, it can all have legs. You yeah. just need to decide that it can. Yeah. You know? That's great. It can, it, it can all have legs. You just need to decide that it can. Yeah. All right. When it comes to the way you record bass at home, with these analog pedals you mentioned to do your thing, yeah, you know, the bass yeah, thing yeah. do you commit to those going in, or are you? Do you send the producer the sort of? Because certainly some of these synth bass thing, if you just listen to the dry DI I mean, only so, track, I mean, so it would the, sound, like, it would sound incredibly boring. Yes, and I. Um, Oh man, I try to work with people that are fine with the commitment. Yeah. I'm all about the commitment. Now that said, if I work with someone and it's like a mildly overdriven thing and they maybe want to try different aspects of overdrive, maybe on their, you know, they want to put it through their neural DSP plugins or whatever, I'm happy to send a, a DI. I'm happy to do whatever they want, but I think it is really, really a mistake to like 
Well, here, if you, especially if you're playing a synth thing, and then the DI isn't going to sound at all like what you played yeah. with effects. Yeah. Um, so I never send it if I'm not asked to send it. Yeah. I'm all about commitment. Yeah. Um, I want to, that sound is going to influence how you play. I do this sound a lot that's sort of like a backwards, like a rising, like a sidechain sound. It's like after a kick drum, that kind of vibe. And I mean, if you sent the DI of that without the rising synth sound, it would be hilarious. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't it wouldn't read as the part. It wouldn't read as music, really. No. Yeah. It would sound terrible. Yeah. So, so... In the past, I've encountered people that have been engineering out of fear, where they're like, oh, but the school that I went to said that I need to take the DI, or like, and, and maybe we should do this, maybe we should be not committing, and we should be doing this in post. And those people, I never like to work with. <laughs> like, I like to work with people who are really down with saying... Oh, that's a great sound. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And then, if there's a problem later, recut something, tweak it. Or I'm always happy to do changes, but I love it when people say, "Send me the sound that you are hearing," and then I'll send stems of like, "Here, here's the DI with that sound on it. Here's maybe an amp emulator with that sound on it, and then maybe they can have you know some level of like they can mix." it how they want but the sound and the vibe is going to be there but that said if someone was like hey man I don't know what I would rather than do is like okay cool let me do a version for you let me do A and B let me do a version of you for you that is going to be the thing that I'm hearing and then let me do one that is going to be like a safety well, or or something that right, if you're so not like ah like, maybe the track goes a different way and the vibe is different and you don't want that big grindy synth based thing let me do one that is more like less noticeable it's going to live in the pocket it's going to let other aspects of the production shine i'm way more likely to do that than to say oh now here's also just the dry sound that if you use isn't going to work because the the, the vibe is predicated upon yeah. the sound you know the tour you were on when COVID started, yeah, uh, was it a? Did you carry an amp, or was it an in-ear only, or what was the situation there as far as? So I love Eric Hutchinson because he is so old school in his live approach. He yeah. loves amps. I mean, he doesn't love like really loud stage volume, but he's not an in-ear guy. Um, he is such a fabulous singer. So, mm -hmm. and he's a great singer even when the monitors aren't happening. Mm -hmm. He's he's not super particular about what he's hearing on stage. He just doesn't want to be blown away. Yeah. But he likes the look of amps. Mm -hmm. He likes to feel the music on stage. Um, he's been sort of turned off by all the tech that would be required to maybe do like a full on in ear thing. Mm -hmm. And. I've done both, of course, but with Eric, it's like we actually on this this last tour we went out as a trio, and I was playing a bunch of the like solos on bass, like fuzz bass. You know, like I would step out and take the guitar solo on the bass. I was kind of treating it like um, I think it's Millard Powers. I think I'm getting that right. Bass player for Ben Folds. Mm -hmm. You know, so Eric, we had a great drummer, my friend Grady Kennevin. Um, and then Eric would either be on, like he has a telly, and he'd be playing sort of like a rhythm guitar role, yeah. or he's on keys, and he'd be playing keys, and then I'd be playing bass, but then when it was time to step out for that moment, he was just like, could you just do all the solos on bass? And yeah. I was like, I don't know. 
<laughs> and then it was this incredible. In the beginning, I was terrified, but then it was this like when I just, when I said, "Yeah, I can." It was this fun thing of like, wow, cool, now I'm going to learn these solos that are on his records. And some of them are improvised and some of them are written. But like, wow, now I'm going to put on this sound and do... There's this great... His tune, Watching You Watch Him, Mike Elizondo produced that record. And he he was with 50 Cent and Dr. Dre. Mm -hmm. And he's an incredible bass player and musician. And he played a nylon string guitar solo that's almost sort of like this flamenco vibe. And so wondering how to do that on the bass. And so for me, instead of trying to... I mean, I'm not going to put on some kind of, you know acoustic emulator yeah but i was like what if we instead took it in kind of like tic-tac bass nashville territory glenn campbell so i went you know spring reverb and tremolo and then made it and, and played it in bass octave and you know sort, sort of sounded like baritone guitar and so just those kind of things it was really fun to allow me to like stretch out and think about how I would approach all of these, you know, for Eric's music, these iconic moments in all of his tunes, but on the bass guitar. It was a blast. And I hope we get to continue. <laughs> I hope that he still wants to tour uh, in that in that configuration and finish it up, you know, when we're allowed to. And when taking when taking solos, I was asking about the your amp situation. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, this, this I get is, off on tangents, this, man. This is an ADHD-hosted podcast, <laughs> yeah, so I don't yeah. care about any of these yeah, parentheses yeah. as we get So in. sorry. Yeah, no. So, basically old school rock and roll slash country vibes you know yeah. and so yep. you, you you did carry an amp yes yeah. so I have an I have a great old 412 that uh, Ampeg made in the 70s called a V4 and it's made for bass I bought it off a of talk bass someone had put in more modern um, lightweight 12s I think like Eminence Kappa Light 12s or something mm-hmm. and it just sounds fabulous and I found a great road case for it which is you know that's like part of the whole deal oh, absolutely find something that you can case up and then um, I'm really dear friends with uh, Jack Roan who makes the Noble preamp yes. and, you know and I feel like every bass player has seen that now that you know beautiful black rectangle yeah that thousand dollar beautiful black rectangle yeah um, but I love it and he for a minute made bass heads and it was sort of my idea or at least i was i was for sure a vocal proponent of him doing it here's my thing if you're carrying an amp i get it for around town doing the amp that you can put in your gig bag but on a tour i want to see some hardware like i don't want to see the the tiny little class d light thing that 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 i have to gaff tape on the top of my cabinet because my cabinet is rattling it off because it's so light yeah so i said jack what if you built a cool box like a beautiful you know he he hand builds all stuff like what if you make a head case but then you put a really powerful lightweight thousand watt power amp in it and your pre and so we came up with this thing it's called the thousand w or thousand watt and it's in a beautiful head case uh but it only weighs like 20 pounds Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was the best of both worlds. It has the aesthetic. Because really, like, an amp to me is really not much more than a than vanity. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're going through a big PA. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not cranking, or at least I'm never, like, blasting an amp so that the audience can hear it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be for stage volume. And for really, for me, it's, like, stage aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Like, the amp needs to look great. Like, I really yeah. care about that yeah. for some reason. Maybe no one else does, but I'm, I mean, I'm always checking out what people are playing, and I love having something that I feel like, oh yeah, this is this is an aesthetic, 
and a and like a piece of really like a well-designed piece of equipment that I'm that I'm proud of putting on stage versus something that's portable or something that is um, you know going to sponsor me or something like I, I really want something that I really believe in up okay. there because I feel like it's sort of like a centerpiece of the table you know like I, I feel like that way about drum kits too I don't actually care I mean drums have to sound great but they also need to look really good man yeah. it's a centerpiece of the stage yeah you know yeah and so for me yeah I have this beautiful um thousand watt amp that he made uh that I love and you know you barely have to turn it on it sounds great looks great I'm way into it how long ago did, was it that you started working with him so he put out the, a, a very like crude first version I mean, I'll say, uh, that have tubes sticking out of it. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Do you mean the one. Noble DI? Yes. So I, I met him through some Nashville friends yes. at a NAMM show, and he had that early version on a lanyard around his neck, and Inc nobody knew who he was. Incredible. Incredible. Tube sticking out, yep. and my buddy Amos, I think, like, who plays for Taylor Swift, yeah, sure. knew him. Yep. And... And so I met him that early on, and the year after, he came out to one of my gigs in Northern California with the first prototype of a head. Oh, and I don't dude, know, And I don't know for me to play that night, and I don't know if it's the one that you helped design, maybe, if you've known him that long. I mean, I should back up. I, I probably should say, I, did, I certainly didn't help design it. No, yeah, no, but you threw some We just two talked sentences. a lot. Yeah. We just talked so, a lot. Yeah, you did, help. yeah. you did help. <laughs> and I mean, he, he was so cool. He came out to a gig. A I just reached dude. out. Yeah, I reached out to him, and I was touring through San Francisco and he came out with that early version of the mm -hmm. pre and we uh, I took it home I didn't use it on the tour because we already had something kind of dialed in but I took it home and plugged it in and I liked it more than I thought I would and it sort of surprised me and so I called him and said dude this is good and he said oh thanks yeah I think it is too and I love that he likes Jensen Transformers because I I really liked a Demeter preamp that I had for years that had a Jensen in it. And and so he was sort of in the same kind of tone ballpark that I was, thinking in the same way. And I also liked his aesthetic. And I said, is there any thought about doing a version 2? Because I think you got to get the tubes inside of it. And he said, I don't know, I don't know. But then we kept talking, and he's like, I think I figured out a way to get the tubes and the transformer inside and just make it like a like a monolithic black rectangle. I'm like, oh my god, awesome. And he said, I also think I can add three more DCs, or AC outs or whatever they are. I said, oh, amazing. And the one thing that I contributed is his first version had a deep switch. Mm -hmm. And when it was deep, when the switch was clicked to deep, it was flat. And when it was clicked away from deep, it had a low-end roll-off. Yeah. And I said, bass players won't understand that. Deep means, to me, means an addition of low-end. Oh, yeah, it's like the ultra-low on an SVT. Yes. It's supposed to just be yes. ridiculous. But to him, yeah. he's a guitar player, so yeah. he thought deep meant flat. Yeah. The deep means you get all the deep sound of your bass. And I said, no, no, no. I said, no, we got it. That would have tanked it. I know! <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, he said, what do we do? And I said, you just make a, you just make a image. A straight line mm -hmm. is flat. And the low cut is, you know, the little line and then a descending line and, you know, the switch. And so then you can see, oh, one's flat, one's a low cut. Yeah. And he said, oh, language. okay. Yeah. And, that was, and that was, you know, there were a couple other things I, I inquired about, but that was a big one for me where he gives me credit for that one. Yeah. So <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You know? So that is your that is your main head. Yeah, it's my main head. And that, is that for sale, that model now, or is it still like I a... believe he'll... 
the, the crazy thing is he doesn't want to build them because it's he's still building all that all the cabinetry by hand. Yeah. And he's so backordered on the pre's yeah. that um, he's still just one man, he doesn't want to hire anybody else, I get it. But he's sort of not promoting I said, hey, do you, can I, should I do a review on this? You know, let's, I want to, I want to bring this to the world. And he was like, Could, would, actually, would you not? <laughs> I said, okay, sure, Jack. Well, you know. He said, like, I just don't, he said, I would have to charge too much money for them to make, for me to make it worth my time to build them. And right now, I think, I think if you wanted to pay the 2000 bucks for one, which I think they're worth every penny, mm-hmm. I think he'd build you one. But I think he would probably try to talk you into paying half of that money, buying the DI, and then buying, you know, a cheaper power amp or something yeah, and yeah. going going that route. But they're sexy. They're amazing. Jack's the best. I love it. So when you, you posted a reference to the Glen Campbell uh, TikTok, national yeah, TikTok yeah. thing, and that was uh, in all the moments that I've gone, wow, this guy is really impressive. From the Mahler side, that was the second time I went. The guy who makes hip hop synth bass lines yeah. is posting about Nashville TikTok, which right. it's a that is a ridiculous, tremendous lesson for any bass. It player. really is, yes, and, or any piano player or any baritone player. And I can't remember how I learned about that, but yeah, it was. I think I think um, I wish I could remember who told me about it, but yeah, Tic Tac. We're like you have. In the 60s, there'd be an upright player in the studio playing the bass line, and then there would be maybe a guitar player that would be playing either bass six or baritone, which is this, a bass six, if you don't know, it looks like a Jaguar, it's slightly longer scale, and it's tuned E to E like a guitar, but an octave lower. Mm -hmm. So all the guitar shapes, even chordally, work on that instrument, it's just an octave lower. So there'd be someone playing that, someone playing upright, and they would have to work out how to double the line. And I don't know if it was like to make the bass part cut through. I don't know why. I should. I need to look into it more. Like I don't know why that happened. It was just sort of an aesthetic, and it's so cool because you've got a guy playing a pick on a bass six, and then someone else playing fingers on an upright, and just the combination of that sound is amazing. And then Glenn, Glenn Campbell takes a really cool bass six solo on the tune Wichita Lineman, which if you don't know, you should check out. It's like. It's it's so cool and it's very understated and like low and you know it's sort of the anti guitar solo right yeah. because it's just this sort of cool texture um, and I love you know like Quentin Tarantino movies and so yeah. there's all this sort of like spaghetti western yeah, yeah there's this kind of cool ugly yeah. like mean but very organic sound again it's that thing I've talked about around thumbprint it's very like a thing mm-hmm. it's like again, not supposed to be good for everything mm-hmm. it's good for its thing yeah. and I'm fascinated by that stuff and another thing side note yep. Wichita Lineman uh, arguably one of the best string arrangements the opposite register oh, of ours yeah, one man. of the most beautiful string arrangement in popular music oh, cool. any genre cool I love that I love that you said that because I agree it's, it's awesome. the most romantic and sad <laughs> thing you'll it's, ever hear I know it's so beautiful yeah oh just the lyrics too I mean you know and I remember like my parents talked to me about that tune when I was younger and I thought oh silly yeah like, I, you know because I just wanted to listen to Shout at the Devil you know but like it is it is a beautiful song yeah amazing yeah uh, definitely definitely that guy was there's a lot of genius there. Oh, for sure. And he yeah. was part of the Wrecking Crew. And people don't, I think, if you just kind of a, 
uh, don't even know who he is, or maybe you know you heard him croon a old country song. Like he also was an incredible player, yes. like a musician. Yeah, he was in that scene with Carol Kay, and sometimes he was playing bass, he was playing baritone, he was playing electric guitar, acoustic guitar. I'm sure other things too, singing BGVs. He was the consummate session pro. Yeah, you know that Very was cool. that became a legendary artist. Yes, yeah, yeah we, that that you've spanned a lot uh, playing wise so it, it, it's just great because to talk about being sort of a band guy or I'm not going to say one trick pony yes, some of the greatest players in, on the world but when somebody's truly passionate about digging in all corners yes uh, being a side guy is the right choice for you. Man, I totally agree. And and I have this thing where, you know, if, if anyone says to me, like, oh, a side musician, you know, they're not really an artist. They're more sort of like a, a craftsman or like, a you know, they support an artist. I, I really disagree with that. I think that actually, if you're a side man, um, you start to find your thing by tasting all of these different things mm-hmm. like and if you're really curious and you decide no I'm, I'm really going to do the country thing well and I'm really going to do the gospel thing well and I'm really going to do the metal thing wh- whatever it is if you come in contact with a variety of things that actually helps you hone what you really love mm-hmm. and what may end up being your thing yeah you know so I, I really think it's a it's a disservice to the side musician to say like oh they're um, you know, they're just sort of like a hammer. It's a tool. You know, they've, they've got a right tool for the job, and you know, and, and very. There, there are artists that I've heard that say like, oh, you know, these sort of benign session guys. And I understand that from a from the point of like, oh, you know, in the eighties, seven sixties, seventies, eighties, you've got these bands that sound very, you know, very thumbprint because there weren't a ton of like session aces doing all of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and now with modern stuff, you know, drums can sort of sound homogenous because of samples and pro tools. But I still feel like if you're a side musician, you have all this opportunity to get a wider variety of input and art in your vocabulary that then when you want to do something creative you have more tools to draw from so on that note it makes me curious you who is such as we say in Sweden an all eater yeah (laughs) I like that yeah uh is there something that you've heard recently that you have yet to dig into that's on your list? I have to dig into that. Jeez, man, that's a really, really good question. I wish I had a really good answer for that. Like, oh, yeah, I've been hearing this. So, honestly, for me, the synth bass thing is so deep that I feel like I barely just sort of scratched the surface on it. Like... <laughs> I feel like that is just this crazy deep well. Mm -hmm. And electronic production, I guess, okay, the thing for me would be um, more in terms of like electronic production. Like there's this really cool synthesizer that uh, Teenage Engineering makes called an OP-1. And it looks like a toy. Have you ever seen one of those? Yes. They're like these white kind of, you know, rectangles. And they're they're expensive and they just, but they look like a toy. And like, ooh, maybe making beats. I think for me less about like maybe another style of bass and maybe more like I would really like to get into making beats for people I love drums I actually just bought a drum kit recently there's a a friend of mine in Minneapolis makes uh, Risen Drums and a great company and he I bought a kit from him recently and all I want to do man I, I love I guess I love drums I love them I wanted to be a drummer first 
but I grew up in a little, you know, little house. My parents said, can we not have a drum kit in the house? You know, Um, but I want to be able to sit down at a drum kit and be able to play and be like serviceable, pocket, sound lovely and have no chops. Like that's what I want. And I want to be able to program beats too that, that are like tasteful and like feel cool. And that's so, so I guess drums and like beat production for me is maybe something I'd like to dig into next. I just, there's nothing cooler than the drums for me. So basically, you're saying you want to become the kind of drummer that all bass players love? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Simple, pocket, listening, low volume, funky. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like I just like good sounds, gushy sounds. Yeah. I right. love that. Well, you've been more than kind with your time, man. So I think that on that note, right. we'll, we'll call this we'll call this quits. But I think uh, if you didn't take notes and you were doing dishes or driving your car during this, uh, you named a few Minneapolis companies, both a pedal maker, the drum maker. Yes. And there's a few, you know, people like that are small businesses and and probably people who do it more for passion than, than anything. So uh, uh, as well as well as your Washington pedal maker, you yes. mentioned. So go back, you know, be, go back and, and, and write down those names and check it out. Because if this guy is on it, it's probably fun. So, all right. <laughs> Thank you. Victor. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for hanging in there with us, guys, and uh, being patient with the background noise and all the other stuff going on. Uh, I just thought it was super worth it to be able to sit with Ian in person and to learn everything about his gear and his fantastic outlook uh, on music. The guy has such an incredible talent, and I hope you guys check out more of his stuff, especially the stuff on Scott Space Lessons, if you haven't already. So, everyone, stay funky, stay low, and I'll see you very shortly right back here on the Lowdown Society podcast. <laughs>